the importance of understanding your newest tools and technology, and why, as lawyers, you might need to consider a refresher on statistics here on the inaugural episode of the Legal Technology Review. Thanks for tuning in to the very first episode of the Legal Technology Review, a podcast discussing the latest tools and technology for legal professionals. I'm your host, Brian Folk. I'm a civil litigator and the author of The Cyber Advocate. Uh, Our guest on this auspicious occasion is Mr. Joshua Lennon, the attorney-in-residence at Clio and one of the the leading providers of cloud-based practice solutions for legal professionals. Joshua, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me. Glad you decided to show up, even though you're surprised that you're our, you're our lead-off hitter here. So as a bit of background, uh, I, I first heard from, from you, Joshua, about 18 months ago after I, I wrote a review of several cloud-based practice management systems, uh, including Clio. And mm-hmm. what do you know? Clio managed to be the, uh, they claimed the top spot in my review and since then, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with you and uh, several other people at Clio on several different projects, including having spoken last year at the Clio Cloud Conference, which I would recommend anyone listening to attend. It's an amazing, amazing conference with a lot of really great people. In the time that I've known you and been following you now on uh, social media, it's one of the things that's, that's really impressed me has how, been how relentlessly you've pushed for the adoption of new tools and technology and the legal profession, above and beyond just your work as a representative of Clio. Why is that so important to you? So when I got out of law school, even though I had uh, both an internship and an externship in law school, it turns out I didn't really know a lot about the practice of law in terms of um, procedure and tools that were being used by lawyers. And so when I went out on my own, it was actually this huge, steep learning curve of trying to do different things and finding out that my before law school preparation in terms of job experience uh, didn't match up with the tools that were available for me now as a lawyer. I just found everything was about three or four times harder than it needed to be. And so one of the things that impressed me about Clio when I started using them as a private attorney was how easy they made things. And it was exactly kind of the philosophy from which I was approaching my practice that this shouldn't have to be this hard. Practicing law is hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat that at all. But we don't have to make it harder than it necessarily needs to be. And Clio and a lot of the other emerging legal technology tools are focusing on not just providing a place to store data or track data like a lot of the older tools do, but also finding ways to make it easier to use that data to make you a better attorney. Um, and it's that philosophy which has kind of guided me now as I've moved into a, an in-house role at Clio and I'm working with not just Clio but lots of other different legal technology providers on developing an ecosystem for tools to make it easier to be a lawyer. I'm sure you, you, you saw recently the, the system that they developed on your percent chance of being re- your job being replaced by robots. Yes, yeah. Uh, that was on Planet Money with NPR, actually. That's right, that's right, yeah. yeah. And I was, I was personally pretty surprised at how small the percentage was for lawyers. It was about mm-hmm. 3.8%, I think. 
Yeah, uh, it was uh, 3.8%. And one of my favorite metrics in that was uh, the likelihood you would be asked to squeeze into small spaces. And that weighed (laughs) very heavily in favor of lawyers instead of robots. So clearly they know a lot about the practice of law. (laughs) But uh, if you looked on that same same breakdown, interestingly enough, judges were listed as having a 40% chance of being replaced by a robot. And paralegals and legal assistants had a 98% chance of being replaced by a robot. So the breakdown across kind of legal jobs is, is vastly different on what Planet Money and NPR believed can be automated about the legal system and believe cannot be automated. The 3% chance versus, I mean, I think that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast probably understand some of the reasons, especially for legal assistants, why that job is rapidly being taken over more and more by computers. But mm-hmm. what part of the practice of law do you think makes it so difficult for the computers to take over? I think there are three things that make it difficult for attorneys to be completely replaced by technology. The first of which is the fa- and it's something that we learned actually in law school and it's that facts have to be applied to the law and not the other way around. And so as an attorney, every case that walks in the door may be related to your particular practice area, like immigration or family law or criminal law. But every case is different and unique when being applied and viewed through the lens of your practice area. And because of that, there's a, a strong need for both interpretation and creativity when it comes to servicing a client. And that's something that's not necessarily embodied in technology yet. God bless the common law system there, huh? Exactly, right? We learned the the exception and not the rule in most instances. Um, But that's almost every case. Every case is important and the exception to the client, right? Um, And it's the attorney's job to try and find that exception and try and navigate that exception through a system that isn't necessarily looking for it or thinking about it. And so that's the first reason why I think lawyers aren't necessarily going to be replaced by robots. The second reason, and this is a bit of a negative, I think, is that law is still very highly geographically local for most people. So your real estate transactions are county-based. Your family law and criminal issues are, for the most part, state or municipal-based issues. And so you need somebody local to handle that type of work. Not everybody's a corporation registered in Delaware and operating out of the Cayman Islands. Uh, It's, in fact, most people need help in their neighborhood. Uh, and we just don't have enough robots, to be perfectly honest, to cover that much territory. So that's the second reason why I think lawyers won't be replaced by robots anytime soon. The third reason is that law is a tangled mess, to be perfectly honest. It hasn't been designed to be systematically applied, and so the legal system is a bit of a misnomer because right now it really is a, a whole bunch of layered competing, contradictory procedures and use cases. So much of it comes down to kind of subjective judgment in many different instances. And so I've actually trained the people at Clio now when they come to me with a a question about a legal matter. I go, okay, what's the actual legal answer to any question? And they go, it depends. And I go, that's right. Now let's break down why it depends. The the lawyer's answer. Yeah. So I I guess part of that, it's a bit of an old saying, but there's still a lot of truth to it is this is a good nor a good lawyer knows the law a great lawyer knows the judge 
That's exactly right, yeah. And it's an accreted system. You don't get to know the judge without being there a long time, which kind of goes back to the locality that I was talking about in point two. So successful outcomes in many legal instances require both local knowledge and this idea of how to navigate a system that isn't really built to be navigated. It just exists. It's like, uh, it's like the streets of any European city, right? A cow walked that way one time 400 years ago, and now it's a, it's a street. And that's our legal system. So how do you, how do you program a robot for that? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it seems like uh, until, they can, until they can program a robot with the ability to process logic and then the random ability to completely throw it away for no apparent reason, mm-hmm. you're not going to get uh, close to human thought. Yeah, but, and then when you look at judges from kind of that similar logic, we're already seeing that judges don't need to be local, for example, that we have video conferencing. We're finding that many states no longer support sending judges to kind of local courthouses. They video those people in. It's just not worth it to throw a judge on a plane to go visit some far-flung community in Nebraska. That's what Skype is for. So, <laughs> well, so, so you can see why there's that maybe 40% chance for judges, just based on the locality argument alone. So the now that's so that's interesting. The in tying in that three point eight percent chance though, there there's it's not as though lawyers on the other hand can simply accept their job's always going to be there. There's you you have to stay on top of new. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And we know and we know that lawyers might not be replaced soon, but the type of work that they're doing now might be replaced, and they'll have to shift to different types of work. And we've always said that secretaries are the kind of the canary in the coal mines for a lot of law firms. When they start getting rid of their secretaries or when they start, you know, really start doubling up and tripling up and quadrupling up lawyers onto secretaries, it's because lawyers are now doing a lot more of that work that we traditionally handed off to secretaries or we're just finding ways to automate it, right? We, we were able to use the new technology in a way that was faster than the Absolutely. assistants were in the, you know, using the old, the old tools. Yeah, it's no longer carbon paper and dictaphones, right? It's, yeah, it's exact re, uh, re- reproductions of PDFs and Dragon Dictation handling a lot of this stuff for some of the older attorneys who still have that kind of workflow mentality. And what do you do with somebody whose job was to take dictation? They're gone. So that 98% chance for legal assistance of being replaced by robots, uh, we're already there in many instances. And it's the lawyers now who either have taken on that work because it's a lot easier for them to do now via technology, or they just have a robot doing it for them. So the work itself is changing, even if lawyers still have a job. We're talking with Joshua Lennon, attorney in residence at Clio, about the idea of the obsolescence of lawyers. You're listening to the Legal Technology Review. You're listening to the Legal Technology Review on the Cyber Advocate. The show is powered by B&R Concepts for all of your law firm's IT and technology needs. Don't forget to follow all the latest on technology and tools for legal professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. All right, we're, we're back talking about tools and technology for lawyers. Uh, our guest today is Joshua Lennon, and he is incredibly pleased to be our very first guest on our very first podcast here at the Cyber Advocate. Joshua, for those who don't know, educate us about Clio and what you guys do there. Sure. So Clio is a cloud-based practice management platform. 
And that's, that's a lot of jargon for us really saying we help man, law firms manage both the business aspects of their law firm as well as the, the work product aspects of their law firm. So anything from uh, intaking and storing your client's data, whether it be different types of fields and information that are important to their case or the documents that need to be submitted um, and organizing that in a way that's organized by case file by your calendar, by your communications, all in one place, to also managing the business aspects of your program, uh, your practice as well. So your time tracking, your invoicing, your accounts receivable, um, making sure that both the work that you're doing and the work that you should be paid for are being tracked and combined in one place. Uh, we're cloud-based, which means we run on a browser on any computer you have. So there's no need to kind of buy an expensive piece of software or an expensive server to run it. And we're also mobile. So if you want to track time on your phone or use your tablet as part of your practice, you now can. The majority of our users are small to mid-sized law firms who have found that it's much easier to kind of roll out a cloud-based system without heavy investment and use it to manage not just an office environment, but multiple office environments. So your home office as well as your office downtown. Or maybe you want to work with attorneys across the state and everybody has their own work location. You can do that with a cloud-based system. Or when so you're recording made it, a podcast in a closet. When you're recording a podcast in a closet. <laughs> we've made it really easy for attorneys to have access to a tool that keeps them organized and on track and helps them hopefully be paid a little quicker and faster um, and have access to that from anywhere. We're a platform rather than just a piece of software, which also means that attorneys can plug in their favorite software from across the web. So if you're using Gmail or Dropbox, you can plug those into Clio and they sync information seamlessly, allowing you to pick and choose your favorite tools and build your own legal technology toolbox. For those of us who do use Clio or maybe interested in adopting the, that as their cloud-based platform, is there uh, anything that you're allowed to tell us that we uh, should be looking forward to in the near future? Oh, uh, previews. Uh, actually, we've got a big meeting just this week where we're going over our roadmap for the next six months. So there are some pretty exciting debates happening right now on, on what's going to get priority. So a couple things that I'm rooting for in the upcoming future um, as part of this process. So it's not promises that they're going to be made, but promises that I am fighting for them. Uh, so we, I, we, we just know that if they don't happen, you lost. It's totally my fault. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking a look at uh, building a tighter integration with Office 365. I think um, lawyers using iPads would really like that. The ability to uh, open the Word app on their iPad and make a couple edits and then see that document synced automatically into Clio. I do know that Dropbox just recently added that, and that was something that I was I was very impressed by. So that, that's you got you got my vote on that one too. Yeah, um, I'm also pushing for the idea of evergreen retainers, which is kind of a, a minimal amount of advance fees that are deposited in an attorney's trust account, and if they ever drop below that. In addition to issuing a bill notifying the client of a transfer of funds from that trust account, you then also issue a second bill to top up that trust account. And it's something that most normal accounting programs can't handle. So it's definitely a space for Clio to step up and fill a gap for attorneys that are out there who are really trying to control their cash flow. And one way we can contribute and help um, maintain a better system of cash flow management for attorneys that are out there. 
So those are two of the things I'm fighting for in our, in our upcoming roadmap debate. I remember when I first heard your title announced. I'd read it, I'm sure, a bunch of times. Yeah. When it was actually announced the first time I thought about it, CleoCon last year, attorney in residence. Mm-hmm. Tell me what that, what that means. So that is a made-up title. I made that up. <laughs> Uh, that's my contribution to the legal space. Is I've made up a title. So Clio, when I joined it, it was already about 40 people strong, had about 5,000 law firms using it, had, some, had made incredible inroads into the legal space, but they didn't have any attorneys working for them. They worked with a lot of attorneys, some great attorneys out there, but they didn't have anybody kind of inside helping shape the mindset um, and translating the needs of attorneys. And so I actually work with pretty much every team in Clio. So our product team, our sales team, our support team, our marketing team on providing some type of insight into the legal space. Sometimes it's, it's things that I already know from my own days in practice. Sometimes it's things that I have the specialized training to research. And sometimes it's just I've got a lot of connections with some great people via, say, social media. Um, where I can turn to somebody and get an answer very quickly for them. So our sales team may come to me and say, you know, we had an attorney who's interested in us. They do um, homeowner association law. What does that attorney do? And how can I see if Clio is a good fit for them? You know, what would they really want to know about Clio? And so I'll walk them through, you know, what is a homeowner association? What are some of the laws around that? what would an attorney who's managing a bunch of homeowner associations really be interested in? You know, like the drafting and generation of bylaws, um, the need to control a lot of different meetings, the ability to handle some arbitration amongst the homeowners themselves over issues um, before it goes to court. And then what are the features that can be associated with? And that, that's how I help our sales team. I'll also work with them on making sure that they set up really good focused demos for different practice areas out there. So we aren't wasting an attorney's time. If they request a demo and they're a criminal attorney, they're going to get a criminal-focused demo. They can really weigh the tool, see if it's right for them. And if it is, that's great. And if it's not, that's great too. But we want to be respectful and mindful of their time. And my contribution to that really helps. Uh, with the sales and support team, they may come to me with questions about ethics. Um, so we've got an attorney, he's coming in. He wants to do X with his trust account. We've never done that before. It's not really built that way. Is this ethical? And I'll, I'll walk through the rules with them and be like, yeah, I think that attorney is right on track. Of course, we should always recommend if they have questions about ethics, they should call their, their state's ethics lines. But yeah, here's, here's a way that we can work with them on helping meet their needs. With our marketing team, I'll take a look at different messaging and making sure that we're using the right language to speak to attorneys and also translating the language by which attorneys are speaking to us. And my favorite example, and you'll, you'll laugh, this is so geeky, is at our conference, we have a track or a series of sessions where it's just kind of one-on-one -on -one time with people at Clio, right? So you can come and speak to one of our developers on a feature that you think would be really neat and kind of pitch the feature. Um, you can get some one-on-one -on -one time with our support team and, and get help on really getting the most value out of Clio. And we called it the unconference for a couple of years, and that name really never like sung to anybody. So this year, and this is so geeky, we're going to call it the ex parte. Yeah, okay, <laughs> there's the laugh. Yeah, where you just get away from the crowd and you get some one on one time. It's ex parte. It's it's so legally everyone's going to laugh, but everyone's going to get it. Yeah, exactly. And 
I said, oh, I know, we should name it, guys. We should name it ex parte. And just blank stares all around the conference table, right? Um, and I'm just laughing like a, a, a fiend. So that's, that's the kind of thing that I do is I throw out uh, legal jargon, and nobody knows what I'm talking about here. So but, but, that's an attorney in residence. Well, the, the nice part about that is that at the very least uh, you, should have, you should have enough uh, support behind when, when they do see everyone laughing at the conference to build up some, some pretty good street cred there. I hope so, yeah. Knock, knock on wood for that. Um, and then I'll, I'll work with our product team on feature design and QA. So my favorite example of that is where we were working on contingency fee billing. And they said, well, if you're doing contingency fee billing, you don't need to track your time then. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Of course you need to track your time. Yeah, good really? luck recovering those fees and uh, if, if, you're, if you're eligible for anything if you haven't gotten something recorded here. Exactly, right? Um, and there are fee-shifting statutes out there for many different practice areas where you have to show the work of your time. And you even get paid an hourly rate, uh, not a great one, but an hourly rate based on, on that yeah. time tracking. So just in that, like, 30 seconds, they, they totally had a better understanding of what lawyers need from a feature like contingency fee billing. And so they've gone and they're working and they're building it. So having an attorney in residence is actually really helpful to our users because it's the type of feedback that this company needs to better serve those types of customers. Couldn't agree more. We're uh, talking with Joshua Lennon, the attorney in residence, self-proclaimed and now officially company adopted title at, at Clio. We're talking about adoption of technology here on the Legal Technology Review. this podcast you can really help us out by heading over to itunes look up the cyber advocates legal technology review and go ahead and leave us a rating and review we appreciate it really help us out all right we are we are back talking to joshua lennon Joshua, your involvement with, with Clio, and ever since I've been following your involvement, pushing the technological advancement of the legal profession has to have led you to a point where you, you've got some ideas about what attorneys need to do to stay in that 3.8% likelihood of being taken over by robots. What are the key technological tools or advancements or even mindsets do you think attorneys need to adopt to keep from being made obsolete? So I, I think you used the right uh, word, and it's mindset. So even though I work for a legal technology company, I'll, I'll tell you the dirty secret, and there is no one perfect legal tool or legal technology out there. There are so many diverse types of attorneys. There are so many diverse types of practices. There's no way one tool can be the perfect tool for everyone. So instead, I think attorneys need to keep in mind uh, the idea of a tool as an aid for their work, um, and they also need to keep in mind their ethical obligation in terms of document retention and management. And this one seems a little weird to be talking about legal technology, but I've been really surprised by the lack of standards when it comes to how legal technology is storing data right now. And I think we're going to be in for a world of hurt in about probably 10 to 15 years when attorneys are starting to get requests for old legal documents or old legal case files and finding that that CD they put in their closet a decade ago can no longer be read because computers don't use CD drives 
or they typed it in WordPerfect, and WordPerfect, while it's hanging on by its fingernails, and, and, and I love WordPerfect, but it is no longer the dominant word processor out there. Setting aside even just the files that over time corrupt or are in, are inaccessible just based on the changing, the changing nature of data. Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing this shift in terms of tools and readability and functionality that's happening consistently, like every couple of years. And so I think if lawyers really want to be keeping pace with technology, they need to be thinking about exiting every tool they adopt, when they adopt it. And I think there's some good news there. I think the rise of kind of cloud-based tools, if you pick a cloud-based tool that has that same mindset, that easy on, easy off kind of mentality, will support you on that. And the files that you uh, receive from them when you exit will be web compliant, uh, which is a system of standards that are kind of community developed over time, but will be readable for a long time into the future. So there are some states where certain type of documents have indefinite retention. Anything to which a client has a property interest, for example, you keep forever if you're going to keep it. And there are some states where it's you keep your trust information for five years, um, but if you're a smart attorney, you keep it for a lot longer than that because a negligence claim has a, a different kind of time period attached to it than simply your, your ethics rules around trust accounting. So having all of that information in a usable format not just now, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, it's going to be really important for lawyers. And I think they should be keeping that in mind. And if they have that mindset now, then no matter what tool they adopt in the future or how technology shifts, they'll be able to shift with it. So it's a mindset that pays dividends decades down the line. What one tool right now are you most excited about seeing get wide or wider use among legal professionals? I think it depends on the practice area. So there's one of the ones that I really enjoy up in Canada is uh, an online research engine called Canly, uh, C-A-N-L-I-I. And the L-I-I is important because it's a legal information institute. It's a nonprofit legal research engine that's actually funded by dues lawyers pay their bar association up here in Canada. But it's not just lawyers that are using it. It's lawyers who are pooling their funds and creating an incredibly useful tool for legal research for the attorneys, but also making it publicly available so that the law is now in the public domain. Lawyers are contributing to the legal knowledge, not just of themselves, but also of all of Canada. You can read cases from tribunals that were never published before anywhere in a digital format. You can make connections and commentary between laws quickly and easily. And so as a tool, not only is it well-designed and well-run and well-managed, but it also, I think, has a really great social component to it. And that's what makes it exciting to me. Lawyers creating a good tool, not just for themselves, but for uh, the public at large. That's phenomenal. I think we're seeing some really interesting work in terms of legislative and contract drafting as well, based on machine-readable technology, so contracts that label different sections by their intent. We as lawyers have always done this, right? You type in a heading in your contract, right? Like this is the arbitration clause, and then you talk about the arbitration clause underneath that. But now we're, we're not just labeling it by a line of text, but by blocking out that segment in such a way that a machine can then read a thousand contracts at once and pull out the severability clauses and compare them against each other 
in terms of language. And we can maybe even compare those clauses against litigation around those clauses. So if I, as a, a company, have contracts going back 30 years that are still active, which easily the case for some companies, right? I can take these tools, feed in the contracts, uh, label the severability clause, and see which contracts still are good based on their severability clauses against the common law that's out there now. And so, and if I've got a contract that while it's still active, may have a bad severability clause on it, then that legal department or the law firm that services that corporation, that's a great business opportunity to show value, to show here's something that might be a potential risk to the company that we can go out and fix today. So the idea of kind of machine-readable law and machine-readable documents from a legal perspective, it's actually very exciting in terms of preventing risk and creating better legal outcomes. That's interesting to me because I, one of the things that I keep hearing, and it drives me nuts every time I hear it, is the idea that it's you know, something goes wrong means it's time to call the lawyers. And you talk to anyone in construction law, I hear this all the time, mm-hmm. is realize that setting aside defects, which you're never going to know about until they happen, right? Um, most of the things that you deal with there's been a problem, so call the lawyers. It's there is a problem because you didn't call the lawyers. And this idea that you, you know, even, even like you're saying, you add value as a, a general counsel or an outside counsel, you add value by being able to alert the company to potential problems. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's something that could solve a lot of problems. And I also think change the mindset of a lot of, a lot of people in how they use attorneys in business. And I think that you know you could see a decrease in legal spend and an increase in legal va- in, in, in the value of the legal services. Absolutely the case. Uh, we're in total agreement there. So lawyers become risk analysis and problem prevention rather than problem solvers. And I'm putting quotes around solvers for, for people on audio. Um, because quite frankly, nobody wants to go through the process of going to court, getting damages, you don't actually feel whole. It's just the best we can do right now to make you whole in a lot of those instances. And if we can just keep you whole to begin with, why don't we aim for that first? What would be your, uh, your biggest suggestion right now? What can lawyers listening to this podcast do tomorrow or next week or at least start the process to ensure that they stay within that 3.8% likelihood of being made obsolete? I think tomorrow... They should go out and, quite frankly, become better at math. This sounds awful. Oh, no, it uh, doesn't. Trust me. I'm, but, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the math person in our office. Okay. I, I am not because I work for a technology company, but I was the math <laughs> person point, yeah. uh, in a lot of other places. And so much of risk prevention is being able to kind of weigh the odds or um, spot trends and patterns as they emerge. And, and that's all becoming math right now. Um, the data that we have built up over decades is now being digitized. And we can, like that contract example I talked about, right? Take a thousand contracts and look through them programmatically and find problems and solve those problems. And only if you're comfortable with math-like thinking, which is used in many different types of programming as well as straight math itself, will you be able to shift into that value add as a lawyer. So I would, I would go and take a stats class tomorrow if I were uh, any, any law student or lawyer planning for the future right now. Um, go to a community college, um, hop online to the Khan Academy, and really just become comfortable with math and thinking 
with either um, symbolic logic or statistical analysis. That's like I keep laughing every time I hear everyone talk about the need to teach technology in law school. It's like the idea of teaching the newest medical practice in medical school. What they're going to teach you is how to practice medicine or practice law because whatever they teach you is not going to be what you're practicing with. Technology advances. And That's so, true. And so while the application of technology in, in law is important to know about, it does strike me that what you're saying is add a knowledge management component to law school. The idea that data-driven decisions, big data into small data, analyzing trends, analyzing patterns, knowing what's happening, being able to store knowledge and then call upon it when needed. Uh, a company's best assets are its employees. And, and for in a law firm, it may you may laugh at it being a cliche, but it is absolutely the case. You will never replace the knowledge and experience of a lawyer who leaves. But if you do everything you can to bank that knowledge in a way that's retrievable, Mm-hmm. Scalable. Exactly. Something you can yeah. analyze. That's It's something that every time I present it to attorneys that aren't familiar with statistical analysis and even just basic databasing, mm-hmm. um, it's it's that the blank stare that you got from your tech crew when you talked about ex parte. Ex parte, yeah. That's absolutely the case. And now it's, it's the other way around. So now I'm translating technology for lawyers uh, rather than translating lawyers to technologists. Um, so that's just another another layer to the attorney in residence role is being able to see both sides of that now. Mr. Joshua Lennon, thank you for uh, being our guest on the inaugural Legal Technology Review podcast. Thank you. It's actually been a lot of fun. It's great to talk about these issues. I think um, the conversation is becoming more and more widespread, and we're seeing changes in legal education and legal training that are really benefiting attorneys. 3.8% chance. I like those odds. And let's all work together to preserve it. And we just got to, you know, hope that everyone actually adopts the idea of learning math. I've, that's, that's one I'm not. I'm not that's well, a tough other, sell. Otherwise, I'm the one in the office that knows how to do macros on Excel, so they all just come to me anyway. So. <laughs> well, I, I can work a pivot table. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, mm-hmm. to all, you, all the listeners, thanks for tuning in to the inaugural Legal Technology Review podcast. My name is Brian Folk, author of The Cyber Advocate. You can... Visit us at www.thecyberadvocate.com. You can check out the offerings that Clio has, www.goclio.com. And you can probably find a whole lot of photos of Joshua Lennon online just by Googling him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Brian. It was really a lot of fun. (laughs) 